everyone. Welcome to Hey Hey Agave. And today we are bringing you the audio from the recent panel conversation, Does Big Mezcal Equal Bad? Looking Beyond Oaxaca. It was organized and produced by Mezcalistas and the Mezcal Collaborative, and it was moderated by Tess Rose Lampert. It featured the guest panelists Kai Hakkinen of Back Bar, Arik Torin of Fidencio, and Danny Mena of Leyenda. Uh, this conversation goes a little bit over an hour. Um, I'm not sure if you guys will be able to really hear the final Q&A, but I'm hoping, I think the panelists repeated the, the, the questions, so hopefully that comes through okay. Um, and we also invite you to leave comments or give us your thoughts about this conversation, you know, what you thought of it, how it went. And also if you have ideas for other future conversations, um, you know, topics that you'd like to know about or anything in general, we'd love to hear from you. Um, you can email uh, Mescalistas directly um, through their website at mescalistas.com, or you can email us at hola at tuyo.nyc. We hope that this is a series of ongoing uh, panel conversations that uh, the Mescal Collaborative uh, can host. So it would be great to hear from you all. And uh, I hope that you enjoy this conversation. Thanks for listening. Welcome, thanks for joining us. Uh, we're going to project our voices, but uh, let us know if you can't hear and we'll talk louder. At a certain point, if we need to, we'll just yell at you. It's not a problem. Um, so thank you for joining us. My name is Tess Rose Lampert. I'm an agave educator, and I'm very fortunate to have frequent opportunities to speak about agave spirits in front of groups. But it's way less often that I have opportunities to facilitate discussions among my peers about the agave spirits industry. Um, I'm really happy to facilitate these talks as part of the outreach for the Mezcal Collaborative and Mezcalistas. I hope that this is the first of many that bring us together to dig into the important questions and issues on our minds as people who work with uh, and care deeply about agave spirits and the people who produce them and consume them. The Mezcal Collaborative, for those of you who don't know, is a membership group that promotes the healthy growth of the category through education with both online resources and live events, like this panel discussion, future tastings, things of that nature. Uh, we can talk more about that afterwards if anyone has questions about the Mezcal Collaborative. So before I introduce the panelists, I just want to remind everyone that whenever we're talking about agave spirits, a dichotomy way of thinking is usually not going to work. So rarely things are black and white or good and bad when it comes to Mezcal uh, we're not trying to figure out what is good, what is bad, what is right, what is wrong. Rather, our aim with this conversation is to identify and discuss some of the complexities in a focused way so that we can dig into the heart of those questions and concerns. My hope is that this conversation inspires more questions and deeper considerations that fuel our collective understanding and knowledge of the industry, how it's evolving and the roles that we all play. So with that, I'm really pleased to introduce our panelists, um, starting with Kai Hakkinen. He is the co-founder of the Back Bar Project. They import all of the Casa Cortez Mezcales from Oaxaca, including Nuestra Soledad and El Colgorio, as well as their Durango Project, Origen Raiz. Uh, we have Art Torren uh, with Fidencio and Derrumbes Mezcal. And aside from that, he's been responsible in bringing us so many different brands and really contributing to the expansion and growth of the mezcal category and market. Um, and then we have Danny Mina, 
from the Leyenda Mezcal, a brand that works really hard to represent different states of Mexico and the spirits that they're making, and who's also graciously saving us from being an entirely panel of white people talking about Mexico. So thank you. Um, Serve my purpose, I can go. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to start by giving some context on what we're really even talking about when we say big mezcal, right? Relatively speaking, even the big mezcal is going to be small. Um, but what we're really talking about is mezcal that's designed for the well. So this larger production that is able to supply the demand in multiple restaurants across the country, even in different countries, for the well, for cocktails, for shots, things like that. And it would be really helpful if we could go down the line and each of you could explain what that production model looks like. How are you able to produce so much and stay true to an artisanal process? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll take it. I mean, I'd say, you know, at Back Bar, the closest thing that we have to a well product uh, is Agave de Cortez Joven. Um, it's made in Santiago Matatlan, where uh, historically, the concentration of mezcaleros, uh, distilleries, palenques, fields, agave, um, there are more there. Uh, I wouldn't say it's actually a mezcal made for the well, um, frankly, because I don't think when the mezcalero makes it, he thinks it's going to be put into a cocktail. Um, I also don't think that uh, Casa Cortez is making it for that. I think uh, when we originally brought it to this country, we thought like all marketers do and said we have to have, we started with El Holgorio, which is certainly not for the well. Um, Nuestra Soledad, I think at first we thought this is gonna be for the well. It's the step down from El Holgorio, of course, right? We couldn't wrap our heads around even as an importer what we had in front of us. Um, and they said, well, now we have six Nuestra Soledads. And we said, okay, well, none of these are for the well based on price. And then Agave de Cortez became an opportunity and a reality. And when we put it in below Nuestra Soledad, we said, well, the price has to be competitive for the well, or else what are we doing with it? Um, and we had some success. Uh, we were mostly in New York, California. We were very selective about the markets that we pursued. Um, and long story short, I think we did hit a lot of wells. We were doing pretty well last year. And at a certain point we realized this isn't sustainable. This isn't for the producers, for, for us, Backbar. Um, when you're trying to divvy out cases 25 at a time to make sure an account in New York has the product, something's going on. And meanwhile, bars across the country can't even get it because it's being sucked up by New York, California, Chicago, and so on and so forth. So in terms of, you know, what do we have that's closest to the well? Agave de Cortez is it, but I, I think that any bar manager, if they were looking at their bottom line, maybe short of a handful of places that are really, really dedicated to, well, A, can, can afford to have a, a higher, you know, pour cost um, and don't hit, have to hit that mark. But in terms of a true well product, I don't think we have one. Um, and that's being played out as we speak. Um, but yeah. Oh, I think... Um the well, like let's sort of talk about that for a second. It started off when I launched 10 years ago at a price point at a volume size bottle. And that's changed a lot over the years. And the way that we've approached it with my portfolio and primarily with Fidencio, which is the brand that I'm a partner with, uh, the reality of it is for us to be a part of uh, the well concept 
and for um, it to be available for the greater, it can't be done the way we make mezcal without their brands as well, because we can't all sort of cover it all. You know, it doesn't work that way. So Fidencio is found throughout most of the country and it's all estate grown and we only buy the agave, we only make, grow the agave and not buy it. Um, we, a few years ago, wanted to work with Enrique, who's my partner in the brand and the maker, uh, to also bring his brand into the market, which is called Del Amigo. And we basically make almost the same mezcal, except that that's bottled at 43% at a lower proof and bottled in liters. And we said, let's test it out and see what we can tolerate for the brand and put it into our California distributor and our New York distributor. And it's become the most unreasonably allocated item in addition to the most high end thing. So we can't, we don't expand it and things like that. We're fortunate enough to, I'm fortunate enough to work with another brand, Mezcal de Rumbes, which has uh, an, uh, like, like Danny's pioneering brand, Leyenda, Mezcal's from exploring the, 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 the breadth of the DO. Um, and the San Luis Potosi, we have about 500 uh, cases, no, 500, sorry, liters of a month of production to put into that price point too. So all that is kind of like, it's humming along, it's maxed out, and we, we, we're, we're living the limitations of the producers at the price points. And we do that at very high-end price points, and then we're also doing it at the lower-end price point. And through that, as an importer, it gives me the opportunity to to do work for myself and my company, and also for the with the producers and the makers that I work with. And as I get things going, it gives me the opportunity to you know somewhere down the road to add something else and and bring another. But I, it, it how it works for us is we don't we stay within the concept of the maker. The abilities of the maker and the traditions of the products they make and then when i could sort of satisfy the the, the potential we find something else to do and that's kind of been my approach i mean i think both you guys touch on really excellent points um mezcal's leyenda we got started like 13 14 years ago which in the scheme of mezcal for brands is is relatively old um you were right around the same time, maybe a little bit before. We were, you were an older brand. We were earlier in the U.S. Yeah. And yeah, so, you guys are older brand. So we started the line Mezcal de Leyenda, talking about different regions in Mexico. Um, we brought it into the United States, and the price point that we were at could never make it into a cocktail. Like, even the term a well, no one had Mezcal in the well. It wasn't like people were coming up and even asking for shots or anything. It was if some bartender really loved Mezcal, it'd be something that he would pour in a cocktail that he would make or try to convince people that they should be drinking. Um, and so we had this brand called Peloton de la Muerte that my partner started in Mexico. Um, it was a fun brand. It was something that, that we that we enjoyed the mezcal. It was one of the first producers we worked with. It was our best-selling mezcal in our little mezcal bars in Mexico City. The producer is making mezcal in this traditional method, which coincidence or not coincidence, probably not a coincidence at all. Santiago Mataplan, Santiago Mataplan, Santiago Mataplan. So this is an area where there is agave grows really, really well. So it also became an epicenter for production of mezcal. Um, and then they all, if you go to different towns, every town, even though the same production of mezcal is pretty much the same, it changes in so little, like whoever produces the, 
you know, the lambic stills, whoever designs them, like the ones in Santiago Matatlan, and I haven't seen yours, but they all kind of have this idea of going down like two, three steps and they're like next to each other. And so many are so alike. Um, and, and, and the way that it's done in Santiago Matatlan is a little more organized than in a lot of other places. So some people would say less rustic. At the end of the day, it's an open air fermentation tanks. It's crushing a taona. It's in these little copper stills. I mean, I think my stills are three, four hundred liters, so very yeah, small. Some are, some can be a little, you know, more rustic, and then you can go on the other extreme of true rusticity, where you can have some that are being distilled in steel drums, and the amount of lead you're consuming is probably, you know, <laughs> past the healthy limits. But it's still really, really, you know, artisanal. Um, so we got started with this brand Peloton de la Muerte, and little by little, and so we were the first brand of mezcal to decide to bottle it in a liter. You know, the liter has been going on for the well for cocktails for a very, very long time. By no means did we were the first ones to think about it, but we we're the first ones to do it because we wanted to reduce our cost and still maintain the same sort of quality, the same sort of product. And so if you put it into, uh, you know, a liter bottle, you save yourself on, you know, all the glass and everything else. And little by little, the brand has been growing. So we've never, our producers never own its own agave. So he's always purchased agave from the region. And so it's something we're kind of differentiated. So we've decided to grow with our producer. So over the years, now, instead of having, you know, when he started off, he had six or seven fermentation tanks. Now he has 22. Instead of having, you know, one pit, now he has two pits. Now there's two horses that have two taonas. You know what I mean? So the thing keeps kind of growing in the exact same sort of manner. Um, you know, at what point, like he's still doing all the production himself. Now they're running two shifts. So they start at like six in the morning and they finish around eight or nine o'clock at night. Um, the way we see growth is to continue to grow with our producer, hiring more people, getting more people to work on the project, helping out the community a little bit more and maintaining that sort of growth that he has, you know, a whole nother acre in the back um, that he can, we can continue to grow in this same sort of model. The only issue really that comes at hand is the agave, where you get your agave, how much the price of agave is getting to, like all this sort of strains that are going on in the industry um, and, when, and the way that people are producing the mezcal the way the people that are working for the mezcal, is the money going to them or is it starting to go and follow into the bigger steps just like tequila? But those, those are, But at the end of the day, I don't think there's really any mezcal right now that's being designed for the well. You know what I mean? No one is doing really this column stills. This, I mean, there's a few, but those aren't, those aren't brands that don't even exist and no one in this room even cares about them. You know what I mean? So it's kind of, there's such anomalies. And I think because mezcal started with people that care and are passionate about the product, that, it's, that it's, no, it's so much harder for them to penetrate. And I'll mention Zygnum because that's an easy one where they're, they're aware of what they're doing and they're different, that they haven't had any luck in the United States because people don't want something that tastes like between a rum and a tequila and be called a mezcal. Everybody likes mezcal because they want it to taste like mezcal. And so every producer that's making it right that cares about what they're doing, the only difference is how much your margins are, how much you want to make off of your bottle, how much are you willing to sell. You get to a point and say, I don't want to buy any agave. I don't want to go on the market. I have what we do, and this is what I'm happy at. Because if you were to immediately start to go on the market, like the prices would be changed. And then it doesn't make any sense or it makes some sense. You know what I mean? Some people are saying, this is how much we're willing to make. But if I can sell this much more product, I mean, the, the way that like cars work, the way that everything in the industry works is like the amount of like jeans that Prada sells compared to the amount of jeans that Levi sell, you know, that's where they make money and that's where you decide. You decide, do you want to charge Gap Price? Do you want to charge Banana Republic? Do you want to charge Old Navy? Like, you know, they're a model that's designed all these sort of things. And you have, you know, Colgorio, 
you have, you know, your other brands and you have, you know, obviously the Fidencio ones, which are all the kind of wild or the, at least the, uh, you know, the, the, the varietals that are not as prevalent. Um, and we have Leyenda. And so it gets to the point that you get to decide at what point do you want to stop? Thank you. So before we get into the, the cultural sustainability, economic sustainability, and how it's affecting the communities, and, and we're going there. Um, so, Danny, you're saying that with Peloton de la Muerte, what you've done to grow in order to supply the demand is grow organically with the producer, having him manage more employees, add extra shifts, but not change the process in any way, right? And then literally grow just space-wise with how much they need to be able to meet a certain capacity within the realm that you deem acceptable, exactly. right? Great. So, but I think, um, you know, we're, we're an intimate group here. It's mostly industry people. So if I understood correctly, and correct me if I'm wrong, first of all, let's just, you know, get it out of the way that all of the brands being represented here today are artisanal mezcals, right? We're not talking about industrial made for the well, made for let's sell as much as we possibly can. So that that can just be out there on the table completely. But I'm also, you know, I can think of multiple bars that I know that have both of your products in the well. But what I think, if I understood correctly, what you're saying is your production, you're, you're, you're committed to keeping the production artisanal and within the realm that's comfortable for your producer so that you only have very few hand-selected places that you allow to use the product in the well. Is that correct? I is that wouldn't correct? characterize the second part that way. Um, that would be way more power than I actually yeah. have over <laughs> anything. Um, I rely on distributors to uh, do what they do and I'm a, kind of a one-man show type of company and I'm fortunate enough to work with, um, in most cases, really good distributors that care about the producers and I rely on them to use their team and their sales force alongside with me uh, to sort of um, to work the product to the market so uh, it's really be that, that I don't I don't make do much selecting yeah I'm, but I, in terms of the volume and the production right so it's, it's still volume, one producer for, for one financial and Del Amigo for us we started off with 27 hectares with the Mediaria dynamic of Oaxaca, of, of Zapotec community, we're in 127 hectares, and that's the amount of farming, and that dictates the amount of yield. And since like four or five years now already, we are at like brand growth to farming growth, which went now to like, I have 6% growth, which is where those brands are at now, which is basically not growth you know it's just kind of like whatever we can grow with agriculturally within the boundaries of the land and in terms of production model is it something similar where it's the, the original main person who's managing more people or doubling up on shifts or are there two locations no no it's all the same location okay. yeah same i mean there's more people than more the people. beginning for yeah. sure yeah we started off with two stills now there's six stills you right. know i don't on and off there's probably, you know, seven to 15 uh, Tinas, uh, fermenting tanks, and one and another. You know. So that's an idea of what big mezcal is that we're talking about right now. It's still super tiny. Yeah, I and think. And for you, for Casa Cortez? Originally, we started with one mezcalero, um, and then they brought in another mezcalero and his two sons and a nephew, and they were all working out of one facility, so it was two. and. 
it was interesting because a lot of people didn't understand that they saw Gavide Cortez and said, oh, this is the entry level pricing. Yet I go on this bottle and I see Leoncio's name and I go on this bottle and I see Don Mateo's name. These aren't uniform. They're not exactly the same. It's not well, it's not that thing. And we're saying, of course, it's not that thing. How could it be? We need to respect the producer. We need to respect his palenque, which is maybe a mile away from the other palenque, but they're two different palenques. If you're in Matalan, there's something like, I don't know, 200 different distilleries now, um, maybe more. But so, yeah, we, you know, that's an approach that Casa Cortez certainly takes. Um, and I think even San Luis del Rio, we saw at one point Nuestra Soledad, San Luis del Rio reaching volumes that were eclipsing Agave de Cortez, despite a price variance of about $7. Um, and the way that Casa Cortez dealt with that is to find two mescaleros that were next door to each other who were related. Um, and that was kind of their version of big mezcal. We can scale up to a certain extent, but we have to keep it tight and we have to keep it with respect to the person who's actually making it um, and where it's coming from. Right. I mean, it's interesting to think of the different points of view, right? The mezcalero never thinks, of, oh, I'm making a product that's gonna end up in cocktails for happy hour. But then again, a sales team might see that as a really good opportunity if it's the right fit in an account. So, and you guys, you guys are all in the middle um, of that. You're not on either side of it necessarily. Um, so a little bit on that and just moving forward with how is this affecting the communities? I guess, I guess we're really talking about Matadlan, right? We're talking about Matadlan in Oaxaca right now. How is this even just small scaling up um, within bounds that are still respecting the producer and the product um, keeping it authentic, how has it changed things economically, culturally, and environmentally to have this kind of supply? Um, I'll start. Economically, it's bringing a lot of money in. I mean, there's there's two sides of it. One side is the production side, which obviously the more production there is, the more money that comes in. There was there was a very an article that I did not agree with upon. Um, that your partner actually spoke very wisely about was the from New York Times, Peter Meehan, Jim Meehan. And he was talking about mezcal and basically his synopsis was drink mezcal, but not too much. Uh, and that I think is, is such a foolish way to go into drinking, like understand what you're drinking. You know, when I first got into tequila mezcal 15 years ago, I didn't know anything. And I, David Sud was a good friend I relied on. And he was like explaining the different processes and understanding what like columns still and diffusers and all that that I had no clue about. And as we kind of went on, we were like, and we had like a little restaurant, my partner and I, and we were like trying to buy tequilas that were, that we agreed upon and one things we, we like, but also we wanted a practice and we wanted people that we could support. And every time I kind of asked him, you know, he was very quiet and said like, do your research, find out about it, you know? And there were a few times when I couldn't, it was like, diffuser. Um, and not that, you know, I mean, not to David, it's not, a, that's a, besides the point, but the point being really is, you know, the more you drink, the more money is coming in, the more there's consumption. Like right now, agave espadín is getting very, very high priced. And it's getting it's going to get higher for the next few years. It's not going to get better. People didn't plant enough. Does that mean that the espadín is, is, is done and we're decimating with this species? No. It means that, you know what? People that have a brand like Casa Cortez are going to suffer a little more. People that have a brand like Peloton are going to suffer even more. People that have a brand like Vaness are going to suffer even more. How much you're willing to put into the brand how much you're willing to absorb 
because you're buying it on the market. Like right now, I was talking to a tequila producer and he's telling me it's like 27 pesos now, the blue agave. I mean, like brands keep going up and how much are you willing? And you know, and the problem is, which is much bigger issue, is what people expect for them to spend on a bottle of mezcal. You know, and it, and it keeps going in the other direction. Like, you know, Ron Cooper did an amazing thing because for 40 years, people expected to pay, you know, Rosano Rojo price. And then all of a sudden, when they brought in a $100 bottle, at that time, it didn't make sense economically. Like, there was no reason to charge $100 for a bottle. The money, the, the peso dollar ratio, the money that he was paying for from the producer, that didn't make sense. But what it did make sense is saying, this is something that deserves to be of this quality. And, this, and the only way for me to tell you that you're about to drink something that's spectacular is telling you it's $100. If I tell you this is $20, but trust me, it's so much better than the Gusano Rojo, which is $20 in industrialized and they should be charging you five. You know what I mean? So th that was the only thing that kind of really started to make sense, like as people expecting what to pay for a bottle. And now there is more and more brands trying to compete for a certain price point that's putting the strain on a certain species in a certain region, which is, you know, Oaxaca and really by far, except for, you know, San Luis del Rio also has a good amount of production too. Mm -hmm. But San Luis del Rio, Santiago Matatlan, San Juan del Rio, San Baltasar now is starting to grow. Like these regions in Oaxaca, there's few, like Sola de Vega still, still is maintaining their, their tradition and because it's farther to get out there, but things that are easily accessible, and the people that want to make money, the people that are willing to produce, produce. And the people that don't, no one is forcing my producer to make more. I was like, he's like, I got an order for 10,000 liters. Can you do it? And he has a choice of saying, I'm going to, yeah, I can fucking do it. Or, you know what? I don't have the agave. It's not worth it for the market. How much are you going to pay me? And, and, and there's, we have a very open sort of agreement with all of our producers. And so money is coming in. What's coming into to Oaxaca too is, is a lot of tourism, which is also bringing a lot of money, but it's also bringing in, you know, a world that was secluded. And so, you know, Oaxaca being a very rugged terrain and it's rugged topographically, but also there's just so many little like pueblos. I mean, and you go from town to town and we were in Albarradas and we're trying to get to the town. They're like, no, they got into a fight and they literally blocked the road. And so these two towns can't communicate anymore. So you have to kind of go around for like three and a half hours to get to the other town. You know, there's all this sort of turmoil of every little town and they all are doing their own sort of thing. Um, that, that it becomes, you know, there, there's this, I think, a little bit of a fantasy of this idea of Oaxaca and it's romantic and you have this producer and his hands are all calloused and he's got a thousand wrinkles because he makes every bit of mezcal by himself. And you go to other areas outside of Oaxaca where there isn't a Tawana, which I hate the Tawana personally, because you have this fucking horse going around in a circle for days on days on days. And if there's a mechanical process that could make their lives a lot easier, why not? Why not? I mean, there's, there's a certain thing that, you know, and, and so you go to Guerrero, you go to Durango, you go to all these other places and it's normal. And that is what traditional mezcal is. And traditional mezcal in Oaxaca is with a Tawana. And our producer still likes the town, and so we respect that. But oh, you're like, you sure you don't want to like, you know that that like it's. So those are the things that I think are changing. There's obviously environmental effects. That's it's such a long conversation that I don't want to get into. But those are my two sort of main things that I feel about Oaxaca, at least right now. I think it's it's interesting to um, think about. Uh, you you asked us to direct our thoughts to Matatlan. And uh, if you went to uh, somebody that was really knowledgeable in Mexico and passionate about mezcal 20 years ago 
and you said, let me uh, try this amazing mezcal from Matatlan, they'd be like, mm, maybe not, you know, and not because of the make, not because of, well, because from the, the before there were outside marketers like we are, uh, people were also trying to market from within. And when they did that, they were taking a lot of information and putting it together and putting it to product uh, in, in ways that we would probably, all of us in this group, look at as a little misguided. And what was happening, what you would see 15 years ago, was people trying to amp up production without, like, with an idealized way of, of taking bits and pieces of opportunities of modernization and putting to get them together. And then there were people like Cortez and Mateo and all these other people in Matatlan that started doing things the right way, right? As well, and bringing Matatlan back to uh, on track of making beautiful spirits. Um, and it, 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 it's, it's, it's back, it's known for making beautiful mezcal now. And it was, it was in a weird place 20 years ago. Um, you know, like, oh yeah, sure, it's okay in, in blah, blah, blah production of blah, 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 cane spirit in this country, you put a little bit of, you know, accelerant in there to make production faster. Sure, we could do that too. Oh, okay, you know, and, and learning that way, it was kind of like part of the history, the real history of what's going on the, or what has gone on. And it's nice to see it come back and, 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 um, and there is a lot of production there in the world of Mezcal, but there's also a lot of production from a lot of producers. And over the years that I've been there and seen what's going on, a, a lot of it has really come together as a greater group to be better. And I really like seeing that, you know, being a part of it with, in my way. Um, and in terms of the economic, oh, because of the economic impact, let's be straight up, you know, where is the money? The money is in quality because we, who is the consumer of mezcal? The consumer of mezcal maxed out on let me get something with caramel color and a worm in it you know so that ran that arc the category and we're clearly in a different place as a category and we've seen so much growth that it's through quality 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 you know and with quality there is also you know the the quality that is required and wanted by us for cocktails and so i think a lot of producers are aware of, of the cocktail set uh, and the ones that I work with are proud to work with things that they know are amazing sippers and inequality or a cocktail price point. But yeah, the finite, the economic impact on Oaxaca is, is beautiful. You know, it's, uh, it's really been really cool. What, what I've gotten to see, um, through the, the whole 10 years, 15 years that I've been in and out and doing business there. And um, it's just, it's continuing, it's growing, you know? So that's why we're having this conversation, I guess, right? Yeah, I mean, I think economically to speak to, to Arik's uh, point, and I haven't even been going down to Oaxaca for nearly as long as you guys have, but it's pretty cliche to say, but we've seen roads being built, highways being built, houses being built, uh, you know, instead of having the palenque attached to the house, now that Mezcalero might have a separate facility where he can go to work, uh, infrastructure and working conditions at the Palenques, there's investment in that. Um, not only 
you know, with Casa Cortez, but, uh, you know, a lot of companies are investing on the record in infrastructure to make work better for the people that are actually on the ground doing it. Um, certainly tourism, American dollars flowing in. Uh, it's been fantastic for places like Matatlan, for San Luis del Rio. Um, I think it's going to start to squeeze pretty hard on the small producer. I think a lot of people don't realize that something like 90% of mescaleros are not, they're farmers. They don't have business acumen, infrastructure, strategy. Uh, that's not to take anything away, but it's just not, it's not a reality. Um, and unless those small farmers either own their own land, uh, it's going to start to be really interesting if they can even continue to be in a buy and sell agreement with a brand if they can't find agave or they have to go further abroad to find agave. Um, and so these things are, you know, I, I start to see, I wouldn't call it a homogenization, but uh, certainly as land gets bought up or um, I don't know if you guys are seeing, we, we've been seeing more agaveros, people that are just selling agaves, they have agave fields. Um, you go out to Yautepec and, you know, Casa Cortez had to deal with this guy and he's a friend from way back. Um, but there was a two year gap in when they had planted agaves and they simply couldn't supply what we were buying. Um, and so they said, well, we're going to buy from this guy three hours away. But the cost of getting the agave from that guy back to Matalan was a lot more than it was to go out to the field in the valley and get your agave there. Um, so economically, I mean, certainly it's amazing that the money's flowing in, but I think there is going to be a challenge for the smallest of producers as the mezcal starts to flow into larger channels for larger brands, uh, especially internationally. Um, I think we're all aware of what's going on in the United States, but uh, brands are investing in Spain, brands are investing in China, brands are investing in foreign markets. Um, and if you know, you think the problem that we all identify now is big, wait till that actually catches um, with regard to the, the cultural aspects, I've really seen the family unit, whereas historically the family unit was everything. You didn't really produce outside of your family. Uh, it was a generational thing, even to the extent where, you know, this generation owns everything. We, or it wasn't even really an ownership model. It was more, this is what we do. Um, and everyone kind of participated. Uh, but now you're seeing young guys go off and be entrepreneurs and break off from their dad's palenque or start a brand with some guys because they convinced them that they can be their own businessman. And that's fine. That's, I mean, that's, that's the natural way of things, but I think it does start to deteriorate a little bit from this beautiful family unit that, you know, at least I experienced when I started. And certainly that's, that's still there. And I think, um, I, again, not to get into good or bad, it depends on how you look at it and who it's good for and who it's bad for. But just acknowledging that I, I've seen a little bit of that happening. Change. Change. Um, innovation. I've seen more brands looking at innovation, whereas 15 years ago, no one was thinking about putting hibiscus in a mezcal and distilling it and calling it pechuga. Pechuga was something you made for when your grandfather passed away and consumed with your family at his memorial. Um, and so, you know, as we start to see innovation across the board, um, I think recognizing that innovation is good, but also can ultimately detract from what it originally started as. And right now we really, really, really need to protect what it started as, as well as recognize innovation can happen. But, um, but yeah, culturally I see, and with, with regard to how Mezcal connects to this familial tradition and this, you know, I guess tradition of 
I won't say Zapotec and Matalan. It's a lot of Zapotec, but the, the cultures are spread out. Um, it's starting to become pulled a little bit in different directions. Uh, and there's certainly stress on that family dynamic. So that paints a really nice picture of some of the good, some of the bad, all of the complexities in there. Um, so just going back to what we were saying at the beginning of having this Re reasonable limit of production and that dictating what you have available for the market. So even if you know a few people are using it in the well or cocktails, it's really never going to be a product that's going to be able to be sold like that across the board. Um, thinking about some of these sustainability concerns, both environmentally and culturally, um, you know, the next, the natural question and really the next step in our discussion here is how is looking outside of Oaxaca going to ease some of those pressures in terms of the, the environment, the culture, um, and are there any risks? Are there risks of doing that, of, of switching to a, looking outside of Oaxaca, getting some of the styles that we've grown to rely on from Oaxaca, from other states? Are we risking losing some of that inflow of tourism and those, those international dollars? So what are some of the benefits and risks that you guys see as, as there's more influence from outside of Oaxaca for all of the different Kinds of All right, I don't see, okay, so based on my situation, the situation I work with, with Enrique, the risk of working outside of Oaxaca for us two parties doesn't exist. There is no risk because he's, I buy everything he makes and I sell everything he makes and, um, and we're, that's, that's a, a fortunate thing. Um, the benefit is like, it's so cool that we're having this conversation. Um, when I started going and thinking and looking outside of Oaxaca in 2012, um, it would have been so obvious to me. And I was like, why aren't we all talking about this already? Um, so for me, it has been a long time. And because of, of Leyenda and other brands like this, you know, what is interesting about mezcal for me in the very, very first place? Well, the taste of it, but what is interesting about uh, and the culture and the people? Well, you can only get such a small fraction of the diversity of the, the intensity of the dynamic of the whole category of agave spirits. So you have to, if that's something you're passionate about or interested in, like I am, like I know all of you are, um, you have to go beyond Oaxaca because there are species of agave that don't live in Oaxaca. There are styles of production that are established as traditional that have no no presence in Oaxaca because of the cultural evolution and the global influences that happened in those places which didn't happen in Oaxaca. And for all of those and every other terroir aspect, right, we all know, love mezcal because it's also a terroir product, right? Of course, there are other terroirs and everything else. So. Um, to go outside of Oaxaca was nothing but exciting for me and, um, and, and to be able to sort of have it like uh, be a, full, a packed house in the discussion right now is amazing. So, you know, thank you. So uh, I'll pass it on. Yeah, I mean, I'll go and finish. I don't think we ever took anything out of Oaxaca, but we certainly, when the opportunity came, we saw it as, it was amazing. I think the biggest value that Mezcal has as a category globally is the diversity uh, that it offers. Um, and 
recognizing that cultures outside of Oaxaca are vastly different than the culture in Oaxaca. Uh, I have not been to Durango, funny enough. I was mentioning this to Tess that, ironically enough, I'm sitting here talking about Durango. But uh, when I was in Chihuahua, the first thing I noticed is this is not Oaxaca. Um, it's, a, it's a border uh, region that's been for, uh, north looking as opposed to, I guess, insular or even, you know, looking north to Mexico City. They're looking to the U.S. and um, a hotly contested region for a very long time, hundreds of years. And so the tortillas are flour. Tortillas are flour, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Um, dates, pecans, these types yeah. of things rule there. Uh, but yeah, so, I mean, in terms of the uh, of looking outside Oaxaca, just to paint the picture for Durango, uh, I think... Historically in Durango, the business was not Oaxaca, it was cattle. Uh, so imagine what a cattle rancher needs to survive. Massive amounts of land. So think about the size of the state, the density of the population, which is vastly less than Oaxaca. Maybe not, I don't know about the city itself, but generally vastly, vastly less. Yeah, 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 you yes. said it right. Yeah, right. absolutely. Um, Massive then, amount of space between populations. And then you look at who controls the land. Uh, and then also the number of distilleries in Durango is probably about 70 for the entire state, maybe more, I don't know, but a good estimate. And then in Matatlan yeah, alone, you have 200. Um, so that paints the picture of where Durango is. And you can look at the, the percentages of you know volumes and statistics and numbers. It's about 3 to 4% of overall production, which is still tiny, especially 2%. 2% okay. Of certified. Yeah, two percent of certified mezcal. Of mezcal, which is what two to three percent of tequila. So you know, start to go down the list of where Durango actually falls in terms of overall production, uh, and then also what you're seeing is at least again from afar, uh, and you guys can probably comment more to this is that the generational tradition wasn't. It's not as deeply entrenched as it is in Oaxaca. Um, and maybe that doesn't go across the board, or maybe that in sp specific instances that's not true, but across the board, I'd say it's maybe not as deeply entrenched in the culture, mezcal production. Um, is that a fair statement? A fair statement, in my opinion, just for the, 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 the volume of mezcal that's consumed within the state of Oaxaca. Like Michoacan, there's pockets, but as an entire state, it's not like a mezcal state. Yeah, Durango. It's like there's towns, but it's not like a mezcal town. Like you go to the average bar in Durango, and they're not going to have mezcal. Yeah, you go to like a town nombre de dios, or you go to Pepe Wines, you go to that, and mezcal's everywhere. You go to certain ones in Michoacan, where Oaxaca, it's always been in every like so many towns have been producing mezcal. So it is, in that sense, it is more more broad in the state than it is in other areas. But within this, within certain communities, there's mezcal production that's been going on for for just as long as anywhere else. Puebla. Forget about Puebla yeah. and Oaxaca, obviously, are very, very strong. Puebla, Guerrero, Michoacan, Jalisco, which is Zacatecas, outside Deal, but, you know, production and, 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 and Puebla. And, yeah. Um, to go quickly on kind of what you guys were saying, but, I mean, there's... Mezcal is huge. It's a denomination of origin. It's very large in landmass, in diversity. It, it is it's huge it's i mean it's eight times the size of scotland it's you know it's it's a super super big area why it hasn't grown from these areas is is the real reason why we should be talking about i mean the reason why it's santiago matatlan is such an epicenter the reason why oaxaca is because there's so many people there that produce mezcal there's an agave that grows in seven years and produces for every 10 kilos of agave on average one liter of mezcal where you go to durango 
it's very spread out and it's an agave that takes 12 to 15 years to reach maturity and it's got about you know i think it's like 15 to 20 on average for one liter so it's twice as long to produce and it has half the amount of sugars um there's a reason why durango is kind of growing because there's a town called nombre de dios which is a place very close to the city center to the state center and then from there you can go around but guerrero being very close to mexico city that was the one that was growing the state that grew the most last year in production with Michoacán, all talking about certified mezcal. But if you don't talk about certified mezcal, like the amount of production in Oaxaca that's uncertified is probably vastly more than the uncertified in other states just because it's a bigger state. So the numbers still kind of average out. Um, that these are areas that are kind of growing at different rates. And as people start to are interested in them, they're going to grow. I think the problem also with 80% of like the mezcal that gets consumed in this country is are prices from Agave de Cortez, $39.99 and below. And that's where your volume is in cocktails. Very few people, we're, you know, there's a big group here, but we're, we're a, a perfect representation of like this whole restaurant. You know what I mean? We're still a very small group that the people that do care about what they're drinking and kind of understand that everybody else, like I was doing this tasting and these three girls were there, two of them love mezcal, one didn't. And she was tasting one by one and liked each one of my mezcals less than the one before. And then she had a cocktail with it. She's like, oh, my God, I love mezcal. I was like, no, you really don't love mezcal, but I'm happy that you enjoyed the cocktail. You know what I mean? So there a lot. It's like very, I mean, cocktail is, is, the, is, 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 a, is the largest way that people consume liquor in this country. This is the way that it's kind of going. So if people are we're used to and bartenders and bar managers and there's few and far between. They're not used to having the well tequila. I mean, why we keep using the word well? There's a well tequila, there's a well vodka. So you replace a vodka for another vodka, it's not going to really change your vodka soda. The only reason why people order Tito's is because it's a name. You know, mezcal, like scotch, it's not one that is replaceable. Even I mean, RS3 changed quite a bit, but there's still Oaxaca, there's still Espadín. As you start going into other ones, you have a Salmiana that, you know, is, 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 that is a, a, you know, available at a great price point. It is so different, the Salmianas, and I have one there that would taste because San Luis Potosí is one that kind of changed production like tequila did, like Zacatecas, you know, this whole kind of central high plateau of Mexico. Um, and it's a mezcal that if people are expecting a typical, you know, earthy, herbaceous, smoky mezcal, you're going to have something that's much more on the botanical side, much brighter, very little smoke. And that is still mezcal, and that's still very representative of this region. And it is what makes mezcal special, but it's not what people expect. So it's not something where, you know what, oh, I love Salmiana so much. Like I have a, you know, I dealt with like a bar manager and he didn't have any mezcal and he wanted to bring one mezcal and he wanted the San Luis Potosí one. I was like, no, it's like just because you like that is not going to satisfy the vast majority of the people that, that want to, the vast majority of the people that want to consume mezcal in your place. So it's not that easy also to say we're going to go out and now the next one that's going to be big is Durango. The next one is going to be Michoacán. That was my mistake. The next one is going to be is Michoacán or the next one is going to be another state because it's going to take time just like Scotch that forever, you know, single malts did not paint any significant volume. And then all of a sudden now you can't get rid of like, you know, blends except for a couple brands that are big and everyone single malts and then the, the Highlands are like IPAs. You know, IPAs became the thing and everyone's drinking IPAs. And I think there's going to be that turnaround and people are going to go back to lagers mm -hmm. and then pilsers. And they're all super light and refreshing but flavorful. You know what I mean? Like, so these are things that are, that are, that are, it's going to go with what people sort of want. And because mezcal is still such a small, I mean, 1%, 2% of tequila, which represents, I think, 10% of the entire industry. So we're looking at, you know, point, 
2% of the entire consumption of a market, there's still some people that don't even have any experience in Spadin. We're already like past the Spadinus. Have you guys had this quiche? Oh, a quiche, but have you had this? You know what I mean? Like we're going deeper and deeper into this rabbit hole where there's still 90% of the consumers that are just getting into mezcal and just getting into this smoky cousin of tequila um, that we have a long way before Durango or any of these states really appear on the map. You know, there's still something. I mean, how many how many Durango mezcals are there in the markets? Anyway, <laughs> I mean, there's, there's about 10 right Probably now. about 10. There's about 10. Yeah, how many yeah. San Luis Potosí? There's probably... You, you guys both touched on a, a very, like, a challenge that we have is that now, yeah, I have, you have, there are some mezcals out there that are affordable for cocktails, uh, but that are completely, radically different than Espadín. And we have to, you know, anticipate that, share that, you know, taste people on it and, you know, be aware of what we have. Just because it's a good price point, it's not automatic. You have to, if you want to be in a cocktail, if somebody wants to use it, they have to be very mindful. It's not a plug and play. And even these are not plug and play items, uh, swappable items. And there are uh, talking about the same village. So there is a common or much, much more common terroir. It is the same species, it's more of a tradition. There's much more of a commingling of the yeast strains and stuff. And then we talked about something of everything, everything being different, you know, so they, they're, they're not analogs to each other. So we have to approach it from an independent way. So, so, so let's just first mention the, the variety that we're working with in Durango is for the most part, Ceniso, Ceniso Duranguensis, which is different than all of the other Cenizos. Um, but, you know, it's not Espadim, but since it is the second largest producing region of mezcal and you know there are only about 10 in the market now but it, that's a pretty big growth and there's more coming i mean i just i just realized yesterday that another producer from nombre de dios is being imported and distributed here and there are more on their way so this year alone we've had a number of brands from durango entering the market at different levels some of which you know look more like the the allocated, more expensive bottles that, that all of your brands have. And then some of them that are priced and are more in that like 43% kind of easy drinking, my first mezcal made out of semiso, um, you know, at that same price point, at a similar price point to the, the mezcals that we started out talking about. Do you see, and, and there's gonna be more, right? This is just the, the tip of the iceberg, it's coming. Not in the same volume as, as Espadín from Matalán, but, there is a significant inflow. Do you see that as being a competitor in, in one way of thinking of it or as an opportunity to alleviate some of the pressure? Let's say, you know, there is a bar that wants one of your mezcals in the well or as their house mezcal and you don't have that capacity. Is, is Ceniso from Durango able to step in and fill that hole? I mean, I was gonna say, Eric said it. It's like the reason why we survive is because we all exist. Yeah. I mean, like seven or eight years ago, maybe six years ago, in New York, Delma Gavina was out of stock. You were out of stock, I and I was out of stock. And you're like, wait yeah, a minute. And, we're, had, and at that point, for and there was very few brands that were at that point. It was like, wow, New York. You know, I think there's no like at this point, like the city is dry. Um, yeah. And now there's many more brands. But the only reason why we survived and why we were all out of stock is because there weren't enough brands. We were selling enough. our competitors all the time. Our competitors. We were selling. I'm like, no, you have to use Vita now. You have to use Peloton now. That was just the way it was. So. Yeah, 
there has to be more mezcal coming from these places. Um, I, I, for Derumbes, I don't see it becoming uh, an opportunity of cocktail for the brand, for, um, for their producer. The, he doesn't uh, express growth uh, opportunity. Uh, so it's going to be from someone else, uh, <laughs> from Durango. Uh, um, More as a category, not your specific. No, I wish it producers. was going to be for me. I wish I could offer it, but I. It's, I mean, I don't the state of Mexico it. and the state of Morelos are now going to be part of the DO, and yeah. so that's obviously much Aguas closer. Calientes. There's an agave. There's an agave called Criollo, which takes usually five years to reach maturity, and it's similar to the Espadín. So it's something that that could easily become something that is faster to produce naturally, mm-hmm. has decent amount of sugars, has the same amount of sugars as Espadín, just a little bit smaller. And that could be another region that we could see. And because it's so close to Mexico City, I mean, Mexico City is by far the largest area that, get, that consumes mezcal. It's the, the wealthiest city in the country, you know. So it is an area where a lot of people see opportunity, and you could see a lot of brands going to cheaper for shipping. But guys, we're in the logistics business too, which the worst part of this business. <laughs> um, but yeah, you see things like that making a difference as well. It's interesting. You mentioned uh, Durangensis, and to look at the agave itself, the number of them that are in the state of Durango that are, I mean, no one's, I don't know if anybody's cultivating that you guys are aware of. They didn't need to be cultivated. I mean, maybe they are now, but. There, there are so many nurseries. There are right. so hundreds of thousands. When I speak to us, he says, TikTok. we have. <laughs> The land that we work on has an unlimited amount of wild agave. We don't foresee, I mean, of course we're planting because we want to There's be respectful. There's nurseries for origen reis. I, of course, whether there need to be is maybe, sure. a need, need in the sense of, do they, will they run out even at the, at the rate they're going? Uh, but looking at, you know, how Ceniso grows to what, 12 to 15 years. Um, and to say this agave that took 12 to 15 years, it's a wild agave should be harvested, made into a mezcal, and sold at a well price point just because we can, or because the price per kilo is lower, although it takes more kilos, to the yield is lower as well. But um, I guess that's, a, that's another fundamental shift of, are we still taking this approach of integrity and, and art and respecting the agave and the mezclero and the work that goes into it? Or are we gonna say, this is the price point we need to hit, and we can go to this other place to hit it um, that's again the f- philosophical, I guess, switch. But there will always be someone. There will always there's, be someone. There, if there's money to be made, someone's going to do it. You know what I mean? They're going to go down, and, and how low can you go? And the thing is, like, as you start racing to the bottom, as there's yeah. more and more brands, like you're going to push as low as you can, and Espadín got pushed as low, and all of a sudden the price went up. But it's going to be like tequila, where it goes up and down. I mean, how much for a bar? Like, you can buy a decent bottle of tequila before you can buy it for ten dollars. I mean, that's absurd that that became the standard. And it's like, oh, I can get it for like eight or nine, you know what I mean? And now they're down to like 13. And it's like, and that's for a plant that takes that long. Like it's, 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 it's cheap in the category so much that for mezcal, like the best thing we can do is not to go in that game. I mean, it's still luckily, I mean, the cheapest bottle of mezcal, you know, on the market is still like 30 bucks. So it still hasn't gone retail, 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 retail. But it, has, it hasn't gone as low as tequila has gone. But it's only a matter of time before someone who finds the way of making it more efficient. Like we're, we were talking to this it's producer happening. in, in oh, it's happening. I mean, it's we're happening. in Chihuahua. And so you played with the yeast on one of our sotols. We usually get like 15 to 20 kilos per liter for a sotol. With this fucking yeast, you got nine kilos was one liter of sotol. 
just by changing the yeast and finding the one. It was a tequila yeast. You know what I mean? The flavor was terrible, but just <laughs> it, it had like. But it was something that I mean, it, it, they deserve each other. But like, it's it's. I mean, you know, when this idea, I was talking to one of our importers, and he was like, and he worked for Don Q. He's like, so tell me about like the yeast you use and their proprietary way that you make mezcal. I was like, everything is proprietary in the sense that they make it at this distillery, and you're a hundred yards away, or he's you're you're probably a hundred yards away, you know, and it's different. And just by nature, just by my open pit, like, you know, what mine is going to taste like is different than yours and where he makes a cut. And that what makes everything so special. And you have to kind of have pride in it. And every mezcalero that you meet, you know, is going to tell you this is the best mezcal you're going to have. You know, and that's something that they have to continue that pride. You know, I mean, everybody wants to make money. There's no doubt about that. That's what makes the world go round. But at what cost and where? You know, I mean, looking at like, you know, the, the way the world is working and what, what you want to get into. And is there bigger brands that have more money that push out smaller brands? You know, you have to determine whether you're going to go into the smaller craft sort of side or if you're going to try to compete with the big boys and see what you can do with, you know, the bigger brands. And they have they have an agenda and they have to do what they have to do. And everyone has to have to find that balance of whatever makes sense for them. Do you see Nombre de Dios becoming something like Matatlán? No, I mean, the agave takes forever to grow. It's far away from Mexico City. It's out in the middle of the desert. Like I don't, I, I don't. There's, I don't, I don't, no. I don't see it. I don't. It's not. No. It's don't think of Matatlan as Matatlan. Think of yeah. it as Central Valley, San Patasaros, also San Dionisio, Chichicapam. Like all of these add yeah. volume, and it's not like Matatlan. No. They're not that far apart from each other, you know. I mean, uh, so. Like it's, it's an hour and a half. Yeah. In, from from Matatlan covers a lot of production. Like, holy cow! So, no. With that in mind, <laughs> well, not I mean, really, not at this time. And again, I haven't been to Durango. I'm not as familiar with it as I am with Oaxaca. But given that the regulatory need in Oaxaca, I mean, the CRM is everywhere in Matatlan. Oh, yeah. What's the CRM presence? Who's looking after things in places like Durango? I don't know how many. It's CRM a great point. agents a great they have, point. but they have one. They have one. Uh, that's amazing. And he's yeah, there full time. They have one. He's yeah. there full time. That's great because they do not have a. Certifier. There is not a dedicated full time certifier in Michoacan and other no. places. So that's a really great point. And and they're still not even based in Durango. They come from Oaxaca. Oh, okay. Oh, so they're, so not, they're, there they're not there full time. Yeah, yeah. But they're the they're the dedicated certifier. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. No, that, so, no yeah. they're not there full so, time. Yeah. Trust me, what, there's a massive difference with, hey, can you come over right now? Versus, I'll be there three and, and, Tuesdays And what you're now. saying, there's only one person. Like, wait, yeah, ask yeah. Eric, you know, like, he's sick. Sorry, he's yeah. not going to come oh, right yeah. now. He's like, wait, well, send somebody else. It was like, sorry, it's Eric, it's your guy. Yeah, no, that's why they're still, and one of the things they're looking into is finding different areas. There's new bodies that are now looking into actually being able to certify that are not part of the CRM. Yep. So there's a lot of things that are kind of going on in the industry that are going to keep changing, but it's still like, we were talking about like Durango 2%, Michoacan is like one and a half percent, Guerrero's like one and a, they were like three and now they're like one and a half because there's a lot of turmoil in Guerrero, Guanajuato has a huge amount of violence. Like, so also the, the changing political landscapes in, in Mexico will continue to you know, I think evolve on what continues to grow between the consumer and the production side. Also, the allowance into the deal with Puebla coming in much later than it should have been and things like that. They are sort of like at this catch up sort of moment. There's so yeah. few brands from Puebla. It's right. still, still. Still. 
why don't I have one? So, <laughs> I think that's a lot of food for thought. If, um, I think we'll open it up to questions now. Yes. Does any of you have any burning last remarks? I have one. Yeah. And it's something that we've touched on over and over again and haven't like formalized this thought. But looking around this room even, I see faces. The first time I came to New York for a fancy food show, I think, and I met Assis and I met Tess. Uh, you were probably there. If you weren't, someone from Landa was there. I don't know if you're there. Definitely not a fancy. Anyway, a lot of I know I was. I was. It was the MHW thing. They made this whole thing tick. But uh, I see a lot of the same faces, and that's because it's the same people out educating, and it's this group of brands that's dedicated to keeping things, I guess, away from moving in the direction of, I'll say, bad big mezcal as opposed to sustainable, good, planned big mezcal done with integrity but it's education that's keeping it that way um, and it takes a lot more in our category to educate and to uh, to get people thinking about mezcal in the right way and understanding all the things we're talking about because most of us as brand owners or brand or importers don't have the marketing dollars that big companies do um, and so it really is important to continue to to educate to know what you drink, to teach people to want to know what they drink and to share good things. But uh, that's my burning remark. Thank you. Um, so we're in a room with a lot of people who are very qualified to talk about agave spirits. This is a really nice, intimate group. So I want to open the floor up to questions and comments. You don't have to ask a question. You're welcome to make comments. Um, if anyone has question or comment, Answered it all. Yeah. Putting words in my mouth. No, no, I didn't hear that. You said. Will you repeat the question? Yeah, I'm with this. Next question. I'm from Mexico City, so we have a, a very strong tendency of thinking the world revolves around Mexico City and we are the best, what well, we believe. I'm from Mexico City, but I'm not going to say what I believe. Um, I'm joking. He's from the north part of Mexico, Monterrey. So Monterrey is one of the wealthier cities in Mexico, or if not wealthier, maybe per capita. There's a lot more people in Mexico City than there is in Monterrey, and why I said that point. Um, and so he was saying he could see Durango, Nombre de Dios, being a, a, a sort of epicenter or, or hub for mezcal production to satisfy the northern part of the country. And there's, of course, a lot of different cities and towns that have good amount of money, all the way up to Tijuana, you know, Juarez, Monterrey, you know, Coahuila, of course, has... Um, And so you say even logistically, please. It's it. I don't see that in, for that reason. For sure, the wealth and the growth of mezcal 
of consumption in Monterrey is entirely up to Monterrey. It's how people want to drink, and if you call and want, you'll get it. You know, simple. Um, in terms of the cost of savings, as it being an impactful dynamic for the market of Monterrey, Nombre de Dios is like just effectively as far as, as Oaxaca, like from a logistic, from the business of trucking, you know, it's far. That's like, yeah, it's north, but you're crossing a lot. And uh, and the routes are not so well traveled like they are from Oaxaca to uh, to Nuevo Laredo. And I mean, if you want to talk like about a distribution hub, Jalisco. Oh, yeah, Zacatecas. Yeah, yeah. I mean, right around there. I mean, it's Guadalajara. That's where all the um, the already existing um, big uh, shipping uh, transport happens because of tequila business. So if you want to bottle a lot and fast, you could do it more there just from putting things in a, in a glass or in a case or in a warehouse. I mean, the example of Zacatecas. Zacatecas is part of the Mezcal Dio, right north of Jalisco. Blue agave grows incredibly well. Over years, you know, hundreds of years ago, the tradition of making mezcal in Zacatecas is just like tequila, mm -hmm. made from an agave that's tequila agave, made in a land that's the same terroir, that's the same soil, that's the same climate. So if, if the tendency goes into somewhere closer to tequila and finding maybe a hybrid of like where some people may be cooking some underground or not or something like that, that would be an area that I could see easily becoming a very large, you know, central production area for mezcal. That's, and, and that, of course, for distribution, for getting it and flavor profile, it kind of meets a lot of parameters. And for a while, you know, Zacatecas was producing a lot of mezcal, but now the tendency has kind of gone away from that. But, you know, what tendencies come and go, you know, I think it could change a lot. But, you know, financially, it seems like a very, you know, that, that is a good place too. And there's a lot of production. Also, I mean, like bottling happens a lot in Jalisco. And it makes sense because that's an easy place from there to go to the United States. And you can go easily to California. And, of course, you can go through Texas um, and go the other way. And so that's like what you're, to your point, I think, would be. One thing that I've noticed, uh, and it strikes me every time I fly in and out of Oaxaca, the, air, the, the airport has a, as a Zignum or whatever, Beneva. That's what you see in the shop. As soon as you pull out of the Oaxaca airport, you see the big advertisement. Um, you go to a resort in Cabo, you're not going to find the brands. Well, you might find the brands are selling, but what's really going to be prominent in the supermarkets is... Beneva, uh, Zignum, the big brands, they own advertising, they own distribution channels. Uh, the same way in the 90s, if you went to a bar, in most New York bars, you're not going to find the things you find now. You found the same exact products that were distributed by the same exact distributors. Um, I don't know to what extent that's still, I mean, even in our country, it's not changed that much. In big metropolitan areas, yes, we're doing better to penetrate smaller markets. But if you look at the middle part of the country, we don't sell a lot there. Yeah, we sell in St. Louis because there's a group of bartenders who actually want it, um, or Kansas City, or these pockets of, of you know, growing, I guess, growing wealth. But, um, you know, the first thing a tourist from any part of the world comes to Mexico to see is not the mezcal, but if they want to taste a mezcal, they're not probably going to taste a good mezcal. They're going to taste a diffuser mezcal that they got at the supermarket, and there was one of them and they probably had a stand. Um, and so in terms of, you know, will these brands, I mean, the diversity of mezcal brands that we have in the U.S. must dwarf what's available widely in Mexico. We don't sell Sotol Por Siempre in Mexico. Why? Because 
it's our brand and you know, I'd love to, but I don't want to navigate those waters. Um, the supply chain in Mexico for a brand is a lot more, uh, it's a lot more close. It's an older style thing. It's a more of a big business, big brother kind of dynamic. Tax, taxes and the tax, yeah, the taxes, <laughs> the taxes. You know, every bottle and and, and the the transactional um, requirements, managing a factura, being audited by the government, by the hacienda. It's very very um, intense to do business for a lot of different reasons in Mexico. And one little quick comment, and it's interesting. So, looking at like the report last year from the sales of mezcal, you know, the United States now imports more mezcal than is actually consumed in Mexico. And I was talking to my partner. I was like, never again will Mexico consume more than the United States. Yeah. Like now, so the United States is the largest importing com- uh, country, and it's also the one. So, at the end of the day, what's kind of also shaping brands and shaping is going to be the United States because that's where the volume is going to be. That it's something that's really interesting to see that that what it is now and what Mexico at one time kind of had is theirs. You know, what Patron did for tequila, it's a U.S. brand, I mean. Uh, any other questions or comments? I couldn't hear what you just said. I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah, that's the last part. You the can, project you of the. Can stand uh, up if you want. Sorry. Education, education, education. <laughs> do you have a question? I do. Um, I know that you didn't want to get into it too much because it is sort of a big topic, but I was wondering if you guys wouldn't mind talking briefly about some of the environmental challenges that we all have on face and possibly some advancements that are being made. Quickly, just to reiterate, she was asking what the environmental challenges that we've seen and any sort of like, uh, you know, progress that, that's been made. Um, uh, I mean, I think the the depletion of agave, the unavailability of agave, espadine specifically, um, wild agave, of course. Uh, but, and I think it's not as much, um, I think a lot of it was down to people not knowing what mezcal was going to do. Uh, you know, I know I can speak for Casa Cortez. They were planting for a long time. All their family members were planting all the lands they had. But even then, that wasn't good enough to keep up with what they were doing because there was, again, a two-year gap where they just they couldn't supply enough. Um, I think certainly there's a lot of issues uh, with waste. I mean, if you go from 100 palenques in one small town to 200 palenques in one small town and they're producing around the clock as opposed to 
you know, in shifts around the clock in San Luis del Rio, uh, is there a system in place to get rid of the acidified fermented waste? It used to be you just put it in the river because that's what you did. Um, now, well, they're starting to have to consider what happens to the town down the river or my uncle down the river where all the dredge is kind of building up on his bank. I mean, these are just small things, right? Um, but collectively, they can get really bad really fast. And I don't, I think people are starting to care more. There are certain companies that are actively trying to find solutions, even if on a small scale. Um, I think anything, anytime you talk about environmental uh, harm, it amplifies greatly when you have a big company who cares much more about the bottom line than the impact they're having. Um, and again, you know, you can talk about what all the small producers are doing, but when you lay big companies on that are sucking agaves, uh, you know, tequila producers coming from Jalisco to bring agaves back, that's more pressure on the price of Espanin. Uh, that's more pressure on the small producer who doesn't have any land. Um, so I guess all of these things, I don't know if that's a, a really clear answer, but at least identifying some of the problems. When we, when we launched into the market, we were like of 11 in the United States. And at the time, taking from the wild agave and doing things in the way that it had been done for generations prior um, was still sustainable, to use that word. It, was, it didn't have the same reality as it is now. Uh, so the 400 bottles, the 500 bottles of Tobala that we're making every year was uh, the under the same paradox of the previous generation. So we're not in the previous generation anymore. Obviously, we're talking about a much bigger growth and all that. And well, we plant agave of other species on our farm and we have that going, none of which has been uh, mature yet to be in the bottle. And that's part of the down the road plan. And we haven't produced a bottle of Tobala in four years, and we're not having a Tobala release again this year. So, <laughs> so that's part of the reality. So if you happen into a Tobala, I'm pretty sure the last year was from 2014. It would say the yeah whatever. So anyway, so that that's um, part of the reality, you know. I mean, the last thing that that I think that's going to happen, it's happening, but I mean, it's still low enough volume that you're not seeing the full impact of what it is. And this is right now is you're starting to see, you know, areas that are just, they're like, just ravaging the whole area, cutting it all down. And Mexico has a tradition of rosa y quema, so they cut, they burn, and then, and that makes fertile, but of course you're burning a bunch and then you're planting agave. And agave, because it's so expensive right now, you know, farmers have a couple of choices. They can plant agave and wait for seven years or six years from now, when it's fully mature and they make 20, 23 pesos, 15 pesos, 10 pesos a kilo, or you plant beans, you plant corn, you plant, you know, your, your typical, um, you know, trifecta, and you get, you know, maybe a couple pesos a kilo, but you get it now in, you know, a period of four months. But because you're seeing this, you know, people are investing a lot of time and money into planting agave. So, you know, we'll talk about deforestation. I mean, we were in Solar Salinas and it was like these mountains and it looked like somebody had just taken like a razor and like shaved up halfway through these and where they were just starting to plant agave. You know, agave is good for, you know, erosion. And in places like Durango, in places like San Luis Potosí, the more you plant it, there's nothing else growing out there. San Luis Potosí is a desert. I mean, there's nothing growing out there. There's no trees. So by planting espadín, you know, you're, you're not having to take anything down. Like right now, we're just buying some lands and we're starting to plant espadín, us personally. And what we want to do is it's not going to be rows and rows and rows. 
it's going to be spread out and it's going to be somewhere where we can try to maintain that sort of, you know, landscape that already exists. And then the other thing, of course, is where you get all the wood to cook all this agave. So there are things that are right now, as you both touched on topics, that are still smaller volume. But as they're growing, like one of the things is like every tree that you cut down, you got to plant two trees. But, and, you know, but then you also got to plant three agaves. <laughs> so it's like there's only a certain amount of land. So you start to see, I mean, Oaxaca is a very big state. I mean, you look at tequila, it's still small in the state of Oaxaca. And they produce, you know, a ton more, you know, a hundred times more than Mezcal produces. And that's just from one small area. So you're capable. I mean, Oaxaca is big enough. It's not like it's a dire thing that we have a limited room and I, I paint a picture of it. It's all going to waste. But it is something that is happening. And if it continues to grow and if it continues to be concentrated in an area, it's going to put more and more pressure on the environment. That kind of answer. Uh, great. So I think that we're going to wrap this up. Um, just a couple of things. So... Um, this is the first spirited conversation that we've had on the East Coast. We're going to keep them going. We're really keen on hearing your feedback about how this was, how you enjoyed it, other topics that you'd like to hear presented in a panel format, um, other things that you're interested in tasting. We're going to be doing small walk around tastings. So anything that you want for your communities, definitely let us know. You can stay up to date with everything via the Mezcalistas Instagram and Facebook. Uh, this recording will be posted on Hey Hey Agave, so you can re-listen and share it with your friends. Uh, and then there, also listen to a bunch of us in this room on the podcast there. If you're not tired of hearing me talk about Durango, there's like a couple of hours of me talking about Durango on the podcast. Uh, and then lastly, I wanted to mention Mezcal Week, September 8th to 15th. I know a lot of people in this room were already going to be doing events and all of that. Um, stay up to date with it. Again, we'll definitely be doing an event or two. If you have requests, let us know. Uh, if you have more questions or want to keep chatting, stick around. We also have tastings. We have um, two, four, six, seven mezcals to taste. Some from Oaxaca, from Durango. You brought one from San Luis Potosí. So definitely hang out, have some tastes of agave. Uh, continue to ask any questions that you may have. And thank you all so much for coming and thank you to our panelists. Thank, thank you very you much. Thank you. Hey Hey Agave is a production of Tuyo NYC. Brittany Prater is our editor. Your hosts are Gabrielle Velasquez-Zazueta and me, Sabrina Lassard. Our music is by Milagro Verde. Find them on Instagram at Milagro underscore Verde BK. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Salusita.